Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, today's show. we welcome back Nathan Schaefer from the uh, National Hemophilia Foundation. Nathan him. joins us to talk about Washington Days, our day of federal advocacy, yes. national advocacy in Washington, D.C. And we'll kick off like uh, regional advocacy. It's advocacy time. Yeah, Let's get a kick off of advocacy yes. for, the, for the calendar year. So Nathan joins us and a little bit later in the program. You're going to hear from Mosey Williams also for Black him. History Month. He's a person with hemophilia. He's a social worker up in Northern California. And he joined correspondent James Maple for an interview about Black History Month in the context of bleeding disorders. We cap today's show with the latest from The Well with Jessica Lauren Richmond. You've got all of that and more coming up on Bloodstream. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and follow Bloodstream Media on social media. Or don't. But but do. We're so fun on social media. We'd prefer if you did, but it is technically free it's will. It's so fun. Then you'll know what we're talking about. It'll be great. Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. <laughs> yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda. It's oh, got this God. website. I'll stop now. Bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's. Uh, there you go. Resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Yes. And they are dedicated more than ever, more than last year, mm -hmm. more than the last time you mm -hmm. heard me say this, in offering a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that increasingly complex journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though, I'm almost certain you don't need it. It's bleedingdisorders.com. <laughs> and for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. We got psyched a few weeks ago, Amy, about having Nathan back on. He's yes. been a great guest in, on Bloodstream in the past. Always. Advocacy is important. We talk about it a lot, but we don't really hunger down to dig into it quite as often as maybe we should. I don't know. So Nathan's back to tell us about the importance of advocacy and the importance of Washington Days, and I'm excited to hear the interview. I am too, which Washington Days is in person this year, yes. which is fantastic. And to kick off our Advocacy Washington Days conversation, I have a personal advocacy story. Oh, here, here. Finally. Gather around, young folk. <laughs> Gather around. Uh, as most of you know, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, I was diagnosed with chronic migraine last year and was put on a brand new medication, uh, one of the MABs. So, one of the MABs. So I finally got one of the so MABs. proud of you. It was a big deal. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> I had prior authorization and trouble getting this medication. And... Mm. Um, it started in December when my insurance switched over, and I went through a fairly standard uh, step therapy problem. Like which a fail first kind of thing? Fail first thing, which, you know, uh, everyone listening is like, yes, yes, here, here. I let the system play out in the beginning just to see how it would go. I knew that the medication that I was on was not on the formulary, but it was what I was prescribed. So you got to just, you know, go with the whole thing. Was denied uh, two times and then was sent this like very terrifying letter saying that someone had, you know, reviewed my my 
prior authorization and mm-hmm. it was still denied. It actually said we under it was very condescending. It said we understand you have migraine, but you need to do blah 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 like you uh, you know all of these medications and then this. Of course, and we've we've heard the reasoning behind this uh, program, behind step therapy. Sure. Um, and I, to be completely honest with you, I got very uh, frustrated. I hadn't had a migraine in a while because of this medication, so I think I was lackadaisical about it. I'm sure <laughs> there's patients listening that are like, "Uh huh, sure." Yeah, you know, happens. you don't have a bleed, and you're like, "Maybe, maybe I don't have hemophilia anymore. Yep. Maybe I don't have migraine anymore." Yep. So I was off the medication for about a month and of course uh you know a migraine popped through and i realized i have to make uh steps towards this so what i decided to do was to get a prescription for the medication that was on the formulary it's different than my medication obviously it's a lower dose it has more side effects but i called my physician to get a prescription i also went to a webinar um, with the american migraine association uh, about barriers to this very specific medication and it was as as you all know as we we talk about um, being engaged in your community being engaged in your local chapter being engaged in washington days going to uh, the Bleeding Disorder Conference, going to HFA, all of these things that we hear over and over and over actually do matter in terms of putting words to why we need the things that we need Mm -hmm. as patients. And here I am, have been an advocate uh, in this community for a long time. And me personally doing this was absolutely terrifying. It was, it was, terrifying. I didn't think I'd get this medication and I didn't know what I would do without it. I mean, it it truly has changed my life. Um, And so one of the things that they said on this um, on this webinar, and of course, it was two doctors, one is an adult and a pediatric doctor and a patient, you know, like here here we go. Shout out to the people putting on these webinars. I know. (laughs) Truly wonderful. But one of the things that one of the physicians said was um, they respond best when when they hear from the patient. Mm. And you know they they kind of think doctors and specialty and pharmacies, they being the payers in this the, the payers in this situation, like they will respond when they hear from you. Yeah. And so I decided with this new prescription that I was going to write a letter. And I thought you were going to say that I was going to write the prescription <laughs> from Amy Board. I tried. Healthcare no. nerd. Healthcare nerd. Advo- healthcare advocate. <laughs> Your host. Your host, <laughs> Amy Board, which is how I signed my letter. <laughs> Um, but I was going to write, I, I was going to write a letter. And when I had a, a relationship with the specialty pharmacy, just like many of you with your specialty pharmacies, your yeah. 340Bs, your specialty pharmacies, your HTCs, who I think are on the front lines of this, it was very clear that these people that I was in discussion with, the specialty pharmacy, were very much on the front line of this. And they kind of didn't, they weren't concerned on the phone with me. They were like, oh my gosh, this happens all the time. Don't don't worry about it. Like we just, let's just get this in. Was that comforting or more disconcerting? I don't know. It didn't, at first it was comforting. And then after all these denials, it was like, uh, you know, okay. Like I've told them what I've been on. So I think they're like putting that in the documentation, but I don't know. These people don't know me. Yeah. Um, and she was really, she kind of almost poo-pooed the letter. She was like, okay, if you want to, here's my email address if you want to. She obviously didn't think it was needed because she put the prior authorization in without my letter the next day and it was denied. It was mm. denied immediately. Mm. And she actually called and said, you know, 
this shouldn't happen. Don't worry about it. And I was like, I actually have this letter. And I sent her the letter. And basically the letter was my was my story. It was it was succinct. It was um, clearly stating that this was in support of this medication. Um, this is how what I was uh, diagnosed with. I was diagnosed by this human at this institution, and um, I have I have suffered from migraine for over ten years, and this is what I've tried. And it was just bullet points. And one of the things that I was concerned about is some of the medications in the step therapy platform I haven't tried because okay. I went through, as you all know, a big, big chunk of my life where I did not take medication for migraine because nothing had worked. And I was just going, I just thought I would have to live with it. So I haven't tried a lot of things. And I, you know, kind of, I think over, you know, jumped over some hoops. But I wanted them to know that I have constantly gone into my PCP talking about this. These are some things that I tried. And I also tried, you know, like, homeopathic therapies. I tried chiropractic work. I tried diet and exercise. I tried some of these things, put in what was denied and that this is in support of the medication that was on the formulary. I sent it to the specialty pharmacy and she submitted it. And 15 minutes later, I got an approval for this medication. How about that? Well done. Well done. And I just... (laughs) I, I, I know this sounds a little silly, but bleeding disorder community that is listening, I, you know, think it's it's different, obviously, but at the same time, it's the same. Mm. And I thought of you all so much because it was one of the most proud days I've ever experienced doing that because it it just it, it, it was advocating for what I need as a patient yeah and everything within me was telling me you know the doctor's right the, the specialty pharmacy's right all these things and I just I, I I do think that we let our specialty pharmacies our 340bs our HTCs go on the front lines of these things but hearing from you it will never hurt and all of the things that we have heard from every single webinar, every single advocacy discussion, every single insurance access session you've been to at an education weekend, all of those things can be utilized for you to advocate for your medicine, for your child's medicine, for your access to your treatment center, for your access to the specialty pharmacy that you want to go to. All of those things are important and valid. And you have the power to do that. And I don't know. I just it, it, it was my personal advocacy story. And here as we are in, you know, the three months of the beginning of the year, the insurance nightmare months. Right. Do yourself a favor and um, write it out. Keep those records. Make sure you document everything and feel free to, you know, I don't know, push in there and make sure to get the patient's voice in there because they deserve to hear your story and they deserve to hear why it's important. Couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you shared it. And I would even say, listeners, I'll give you a challenge. If you're putting together a letter of advocacy for your employer, your school, your insurance company, whomever it may yes. be, and if you want to share like a, you know, a de-identified version or without the personal information with Amy and me for some notes, for some feedback on your letter writing skills... Go ahead, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com, and we will give you notes on your advocacy letter. Yes, free service. (laughs) I would love it. Let's write letters. Let's write letters. Let's write letters. 
<laughs> I have an advocacy story for you as well with not the same positive outcome. Oh, I'll put it that way. I got excited. But we're going to get to that a little bit later in the program because right now we have got to get to our very first interview with Nathan Schaefer to talk about advocacy and Washington Days. And here it is, Nathan Schaefer from NHF. Listeners, I have Vice President of Public Policy at the National Hemophilia Foundation, Nathan Schaefer, back with us on Bloodstream. How many how many appearances is this? I don't know. I think uh, four or five. I'm not sure. Uh, you're going to be like, we're <laughs> going to start to call you like a Bloodstream contributor. I love it. <laughs> Hi, friend. How are you? Here we go. Heading into Washington Day's season, a new season. Tell me everything. How um, how are you guys feeling going into Washington Days this year in person? Yes. Well, that's the number one thing that I want everybody to realize. We're back in person this year for the first time since 2020. Oh. Um, we've been doing virtual Washington Days for the past couple of years, and we've made the most of it. Uh, folks have shown up in very large numbers. The nice thing about virtual is it did allow some people to participate that otherwise wouldn't be able to get to Washington, D.C. Because let's be honest, it's expensive to get to our nation's capital. Hotel rooms are incredibly expensive. It's also difficult to get around Capitol Hill. Folks that have mobility issues can't necessarily get from one meeting to the next. So for many of our community members, they really appreciated the opportunity to participate virtually. However, I will say it does change the dynamic of when you're meeting with somebody face to face. So I know that many community members and a lot of NHF staff members have been yearning for the opportunity to get back in person to actually meaningful meaningfully connect with people who work on Capitol Hill. So we will be in person in Washington, D.C., March 8th to the 10th this year. And we're so, so excited. And there's no virtual option. It's all in person. That's correct. It's all in person. Um, That doesn't mean that there won't be follow-up opportunities for people to connect with their members of Congress and their staff. And that can be in their district office. That can be um, in person. It can be virtual. Um, The reality is that we've learned that there are multiple ways that you can connect with congressional offices. They don't necessarily have to be at a concerted event like Washington Days. They can be one-offs. They can be follow-up conversations. They can be virtual. They can be letters. They can be emails. They can be tweets. There's lots of ways to engage. So it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's about establishing relationships and maintaining them over time. For listeners that have never been to Washington Days or maybe are new to the community, can you explain a little bit about what the event is? Like how how does it work? Like what do you do? Do you have to know everything going in? Oh. No, you don't have to know everything. You don't even have to know uh, 25% of things. I know. That's my favorite be... thing about Washington Days. You literally can show up and you don't have to know anything. <laughs> you don't. You don't. We will walk you through every step of the process. Yeah. And so it works like this. Folks register for Washington Days. By the way, the registration deadline is February 4th. Okay. So if you haven't signed up yet, go to hemophilia.org. You'll find all the instructions of how to register for Washington Days. If you need assistance getting there, you need to coordinate that through your chapter. If you've never done something like this before, we will walk you through every step of the process. And the way we do that is twofold in terms of preparatory training. First of all, we will have a webinar for everybody who's registered for Washington Days on the 17th of February. We will walk through, particularly for folks who've never done this before or maybe only did it virtually to date, we will say these are the expectations. You're gonna show up early, you're gonna have 15 to 20 minutes on average with a staff member or a member of Congress. Um, This is what you need to do. You need to introduce yourself, 
you need to explain why you're there, you're going to introduce the top priorities, which I'll talk about in a moment, and you leave behind some materials in the event that anybody has a question that you need to follow up with. So we'll give you the webinar weeks in advance of when you actually come to DC. We'll give you all the things that you need to think about and all the things that you need to prepare for a successful visit with your member of Congress. Then when you get to DC on that Wednesday, March 8th, we will have an intensive training on site for everybody who's gonna go up to Capitol Hill on Thursday, March 9th. During that training, we will walk through, we will reiterate everything we covered during the um, webinar in February. We will say, this is everything you need to know. These are all of the expectations. And here are the issues that we prioritize and what you need to say about these issues when you have your interactions. It all culminates with everybody going up to Capitol Hill on the 9th of March. We will schedule all of your congressional office visits on your behalf. That will be with your senators, with other people from your state. It'll be with your representative. Most likely you'll be paired with other people from your state, or if you're the only one from your state, you'll get paired with a neighboring state because you'll never be alone when you go to a congressional office visit. We will walk through everything you need to prepare and then on that evening of March 8th, we will put you together with the people that you'll be in a team with when you go up to Capitol Hill on that Thursday. You'll have the opportunity to role play, to ask questions, to make sure everybody's got their ducks in a row before you go into your first visit. Um, I will tell you at the end of the day on March 9th, you'll come back to the hotel, share your successes, all of the experiences that you shared together as a team when you were up on Capitol Hill, and we will highlight some of those experiences in a recognition dinner of our phenomenal advocates on that evening. I will also promise you, you will be tired at the end of that day. <laughs> Capitol Hill is not all that far apart from one another in terms of the house visits and the Senate office buildings, but there is a lot of walking and it's called Capitol Hill for a reason. It's mm -hmm. on a hill. Mm -hmm. So you do need to, number one rule, wear comfortable shoes. Yeah. You don't want to be wearing stilettos when you come. Don't to wear space, high heels, y'all. Don't do it. I did it once. It's bad. Not worth it. <laughs> Not worth it. There are marble floors in all of the building. They are very Which I slipped once. I slipped and hit my back yeah. like yeah. an idiot. And I think a member of Congress helped me up. I don't know, yeah. but he had the little pin and I was like, dang Yep. Dang. Yep. You never know who you're going to interact with um, when you're <laughs> up in the halls of Congress. So wear comfortable shoes um, and make the most of it. It, yeah. it is a long day, but it's very meaningful. Oh, so meaningful. I mean, once you go, you kind of catch that bug and you never want to not go. It's it's really yeah, it's a special it's a special thing. Um, you mentioned this, the priorities, the legislative priorities. What are we looking at here in 2023? What is going to be top of the list for the bleeding disorder community? Sure. So um, there's three things that we'll be prioritizing in Washington days this year. The first of which is awareness about bleeding disorders. Let's keep in mind this is in early March. March is Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month. Um, and there are lots of members of Congress who are new. new. There are, there are uh, 74 new representatives in the um, House of Representatives. These are people who might not know anyone with a bleeding disorder. They usually, sometimes you say, do you know anything about hemophilia or bleeding disorders? Oftentimes folks will say, yeah, I've heard of hemophilia, but uh, tell me a little bit more. Rarely do they know anything about von Willebrand's disease yeah. or rare bleeding disorders. It's an opportunity to educate and to make a connection with those that they represent 
in elected office. So um, people often make connections. This is what my family has gone through. We live in your district. You represent my family and our concerns. Here's what I want you to know about people living with bleeding disorders that you represent in Congress. We also will be talking about federal funding for bleeding disorder programs that pertains to research, to surveillance, and to the support of the Hemophilia Treatment Center Network across the country. The federal government funds the 140 plus um, HTCs across the country that provide specialized care for folks with bleeding disorders. That funding is rarely in jeopardy, but if you're not up on Capitol Hill explaining the importance of all of those funding levels, um, they could be at risk. So year after year, we talk about why the funding for bleeding disorder programs is paramount to the community that we represent. And then finally, we'll be talking about accumulator adjusters, which I know is something you've talked about on this program before. It's a very complicated insurance practice that can be very, very damaging for folks with rare disorders that are particularly costly. Um, we do have, we had a bill in the last Congress. It was uh, bill number 5801. Um, it will be getting a new bill number because the way Congress works is every time there's a new congressional cycle, you have to refile the bills and they all get new bill numbers. So it will have a different bill number, um, but it will be introduced in the House of Representatives, we hope by the time of Washington days. And we're still looking for a Senate sponsor because you can't pass anything, can't make anything into law unless identical versions of the legislation is passed in both the House and the Senate. We don't yet have a Senate sponsor for the bill, and that's why we're going up to Capitol Hill to talk about the importance of this issue as it impacts the bleeding disorders community. And hopefully from all of those efforts, we'll identify somebody who can champion the issue in the Senate. Oh, it sounds great. It sounds like a good year. Um, I want to highlight something that you um, you actually put out on LinkedIn. Um, evidently, NHF is assuming leadership of the American Plasma Users Coalition. And I know you personally, as a part of NHF, have done so much work in the blood safety conversations and coalitions in that work nationally. And I think a lot of people maybe might not know that NHF is still um, a continued voice and a leader um, in some of those issues. Tell me a little bit about your work and what NHF is doing. Sure. So A-plus, the American Plasma Users Coalition, is a coalition of patient advocacy organizations that represent end users of plasma-derived products. Um, and NHF has long been a leader within this coalition, has long been a guardian of blood and product safety. And uh, the way the A-plus coalition works is that leadership rotates every two years to coincide with new cycles of Congress. So NHF this year, there was an opportunity to assume a leadership position and we said we'd be happy to do it because the importance of plasma and blood safety cannot be overstated for those that we represent within the bleeding disorder community. Um, the other impact of this leadership opportunity uh, impacts international considerations. The vast majority of plasma that is manufactured in the United States is exported overseas. A lot of other countries rely upon the United States for the safety of plasma donations because most countries do not allow for compensation of plasma donations. The United States does. Most places in Europe rely upon the US for plasma-derived products. So the safety considerations that um, we maintain here in the US are critical. But um, the impact of those considerations are even broader than what we experience here in the United States. So it's a tremendous opportunity for us to take the lessons learned from the past 
everything we learned from the HIV crisis, from all kinds of blood safety considerations, and apply that to the future of what things could look like for the end users of plasma-derived products. And the other thing I'll say is, there's been a lot of attention in recent years during the COVID epidemic about the importance of people donating plasma who have recovered from COVID, convalescent plasma it's called, that can help people who might be suffering from COVID in the event that somebody has recovered from a COVID infection. But the importance of source plasma, of people donating plasma on a regular basis is also critically important. Mm -hmm. So whenever we hear about uh, people donating plasma who've recovered from COVID, we reiterate, but we also need regular plasma donors who can go and donate on a regular basis. And finally, there is a newly founded caucus in Congress, a plasma caucus. Really? Uh, yes. Um, and as folks uh, continue to hear the call for blood donation, we've inserted language wherever possible to say blood and plasma donation. There are a number of members of Congress under who understand the importance of plasma donations and the repercussions of that on lots and lots of people, not just in the United States. So they've come together to form this caucus. Hopefully we'll have some activities that we can report on throughout the year where they'll be raising awareness about the importance of plasma and the safety therein. Cool. Yeah. Um, talking about coalitions and like rare disease coalitions, um, I know NHF has worked with Nord in the past. I know there have been there, there are many different, you know, trickles of coalitions to um, bring voices together to make, you know, a stronger um, statement in terms of like this is something that we want. How does NHF make those decisions and those priorities of what issues to go after? Do you want to you don't want to be saturated with everything? You want to put your name on every single letter that goes to every single member of Congress? Tell me how NHF makes those decisions. You know, a lot of that, that's a great question. A lot of that comes from the community. What we hear from community members and particularly from chapter leaders, what are they hearing from the boots on the ground, if you will? What are community members experiencing? What kind of pressures are community members facing? What kind of coalitions are coalescing in any given state and where there might be an opportunity for the bleeding disorders community to take a leadership role? Let me give you an example. In North Carolina, there was a push to pass legislation that would ban accumulator adjusters in the state. There were quite a number of patient advocacy organizations that were invested in the issue, but there wasn't a clear leadership of the coalition to move things forward. Our chapter there, Hemophilia of North Carolina, which has just changed its name to be more inclusive of bleeding disorders, um, they took on the leadership role of the coalition and they were successful and they got a pass in the state of North Carolina. Credit to the leadership of the chapter there. Um, it, and it was a matter of realizing that there were multiple community members that were impacted similarly by an issue, but a lot of the other folks that were involved didn't have the infrastructure to be able to take on a leadership opportunity. Mm. So that's one example of trying to sort through what are community members experiencing and what do we as a community have the capacity to do in terms of a leadership opportunity. Mm. In terms of what happens nationally, it's even more complicated because you mentioned, Nor, there's quite a number of other national organizations yeah. that we partner with very closely. We have to be strategic about what we can realistically accomplish and how does it directly impact the bleeding disorder community? That's one of the questions we always ask. Last question. Thank you. This has been wonderful as always, pal.
when I was a chapter leader, I was, you know, ferociously looking after stories of folks that have really struggled with um, gaining access to either care or treatment or both. Um, if folks have a particular story that even maybe has been resolved, what is the best way to get it to the public policy team at NHF to um, to utilize, to um, have an idea of what's going on in terms of what's happening um, from a regional standpoint? What's a great way to get a hold of the public policy team? The best way would be to email advocate at hemophilia.org. Advocate at hemophilia.org. That is an email that goes to a number of the members of the public policy team, and that will allow us to hear your story and realize how we might translate that into some kind of campaign or some kind of initiative to move the needle forward. Um, and about telling your story, I've said this on your program before, but I want to reiterate it. Sharing your story is the number one thing you can do to be a responsible constituent and to be a resource on behalf of those who are elected to office to represent you, your family, and your community. You, as a patient, can share your story. That's all you need to do. You don't need to be a policy expert. You don't need to know how legislation becomes law. You don't need to know any of the nitty gritty of how the sausage is made. You're there. When you come to Washington Days, or if you go to your state advocacy day at the Capitol, you're there to share your story. In the event you're asked some kind of question you don't know, you just say, I don't know. I'm here to tell you what my family went through. That's it. It's the legislator's job to identify a resolution and figure out, once the resolution is identified, how to shepherd it through the legislative process. All you have to do is share the story and the reality of what you and your family have encountered. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work that you do for our community. Thank um, you. I have to say it is a tireless job, and thank you to you and your team um, and all those that work at NHF. I'm sure we'll have you back, friend, and I can't I wait so. to hear how Washington Days goes in person. I'm excited. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, just thinking about the Twitter. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. It'll be, it'll be really exciting. We're looking forward to it. Thanks, friend. Talk soon. So speaking of advocacy, Amy, as I said earlier, I had an experience recently that didn't go quite as well. Oh, man. To zoom out even a little further, uh, as you know, as listeners, you do not know yet, um, I had jury duty in the month of January and part of February. And not like going in like jury duty, like got on a jury. Got on a jury. Case ended Friday, so I can now talk about it. Mm. Um kind of intense to talk about, especially like out of nowhere. So I feel as though I should leave the details aside. But it was a few weeks long and there was a lot of stuff. Um, when I started, I didn't know I was going to be there for weeks. And I was walking around on my two feet the way I historically am accustomed to. But um, after a couple days, it was... I didn't think jury duty was going to be as physically demanding as it I is. I know. But if you're here in Los Angeles and you get called to L.A. County jury duty, downtown L.A., you're going to park uh, a, a, almost a half a mile away from where the courthouse yeah, is. Yeah, and hills. And it's then you're going to go to, uh, yeah, someone said it recently. Actually, it may have been Keith in the booth back there. I forget who it was. But it was like, this is the San francisco yes. part of Los Angeles. It's yes. just a hill center. Yes. And it's so true. So hills have always been a nemesis of mine uh, with my ankle. And all the more so in the last few months post-surgery and trying to, like, just figure out what this new era is. Um, but as days went, so I'm using my crutch. So I came back and actually day one of the trial, like I got through jury selection without the crutch. Day one of the trial, they opened the doors. There I am, crutching my crutch. Tap, 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 tap across the floor as the jury goes to sit. Uh, and everybody was very nice to me at the courthouse and whatever else. But there was, I, I had a lot of feelings about it because... The last four months in general, 
I've been I've been getting accustomed to this season of life that I'm in, and I've been saying to myself, to Natalie, getting comfortable with the idea of like, you know, this is my own language. I'm just speaking about myself, but I've been calling myself a partially disabled person. I've been mm-hmm. thinking about our buddies Sean and Kyle over at the Two Disabled Dudes podcast, and I'm like, I should start a new podcast, the Partially Disabled Dude Sometimes <laughs> Podcast. You know, today he might be able to run around the house and do just fine, and then oh, he's on crutches and in severe pain, and it's just like all over the place. But I've been thinking about those guys a lot. And thinking about their lived experience and and I didn't once I was with the crutch, I didn't want to be kicked off jury duty because of the crutch. Right. So even though in theory being excused wouldn't have been bad, if I were to be excused because I needed some kind of special assistance, that would have upset me. Right. So I was hesitant to say, hey, this parking situation and having to walk 6,000 steps every day when I can't put a lot of pressure on this ankle is a grind for me. It took me a couple of weeks until I finally said something. Uh, once we went into deliberations and they were anticipating it was still going to be another two weeks, yeah. I was like, okay. I thought I was pushing through to the finish line here. Finish line just got extended. So I wrote a letter ah! in the cafeteria of the courthouse yeah. by hand, gave it to the bailiff to give to her honor, Yeah, and uh, there's nothing they could do for me. What was at least nice was at the end of the trial, ended uh, like four days ago, um, she acknowledges when the jury's verdict is read and we're all done, like you are now released and thank you jurors. I was an alternate. I should mention that as well. So yeah. I didn't even get to do the deliberation yeah. part, which is like, oh, man. Yeah. Um, she then thanked the alternates and mentioned how in her previous case they went through every alternate and ever since COVID, like you just never know and it's so important. And there are so many components to this case. It's like, yeah, you can't have a mistrial when you have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people's schedules lined up for right. these few weeks. And then she singled me out to say, like, you've been a real trooper and I'm sorry that we failed you and that the court could not do more to help you. But your commitment to this process and the system did not go unnoticed. And yeah. I just want to thank you. And, you know, and I gave her the respectful silent, like her honor head nod, like, that's for what's up. Um, it was an interesting experience. Uh, the, all of it was. But from a health standpoint, I, I did not expect that my foot was going to become like the star of my jury duty yeah. story. And having to figure that out. Like every t- week by the time we got to Thursday, I was like, man, my foot, I need the weekend just to recuperate so I can like <laughs> go to freaking jury duty again on Monday. But I also did not want I should have advocated earlier. But at the same time, I had a fear that if I advocate for myself, I'm going to be removed from this. And while in theory, that would be fine. I can go back to work. I can go back to my life. Right. I don't want to be excused for things because of my health. Right. I haven't wanted that since I've been since I as, as far back as my conscience goes. Right. So it is a very difficult mindset adjustment for me to recognize, oh, I need he-. Number one, to truly recognize, like, I need help. Right. Like, I'm one of those people who could be like drowning with muscles cramps and all and like you're okay i'm like i just need a moment it's like no you're suffering i'm not good at that and then to take action so it's like to recognize it for what it is step one and then to take true action step two and i don't do that because i'm afraid i'm afraid that i'm going to be negatively viewed by the the court the whomever whatever circumstance the plane i mean my travel i've had to do more like oh i now need a wheelchair at the airport sometimes and what does that look like and So I'm proud of you for your letter writing and your advocacy. And I think it's useful for me and I'm sure for the listeners to hear your story at the top of the show about the positive outcome from the the letter writing. And what it's reminding me is that um, I need to be a better advocate for myself. But at the same time, I did eventually advocate and I need to give myself a little pat on the back for that. Didn't go my way. 
I also didn't get excused. And I ultimately feel like I did yeah. okay. And I think I learned something from this experience. But I do need to be a little bit more I'm realistic going forward. I'm they couldn't do anything for you. Yeah, me too. Like, what? Like, I don't know. Uh, that doesn't seem great. There may have been a lack of will. I mean, it was toward the end of this trial. I had been showing up. Who knows what the total whatever's like considerations of this place are. It, yeah. It's not great. I didn't love it. Um, but I was at least proud of the fact that, okay, I did what I could. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did write something that was articulate. Again, I was late in the game, but I did stand up for myself and ask for what I need. I didn't get it. Did you disclose hemophilia? No. No, no, no. Um, but not for a particular reason. I just more so made the point that, like, I don't have parking disability plates or tags. This yeah. is a relatively new situation. I didn't think I was going to be hobbling on a crutch for weeks on end walking right. through San Francisco, Los Angeles. So I didn't I'm, – I'm stuck a little bit. I think right. if I had actually had, like – plates and if I had had different situations or if I'd gone to them at the beginning of the trial yeah they may have either excused me or accommodated me but I went to them yeah. at the end so yeah yeah better late than never but your story is just a good reminder of better late than never but earlier earlier is even better yet right you know no, like for sure not to let things go too long but uh and off mic we can talk all about the details of jury duty can't wait can't wait everyone's jealous I can I can feel it through the microphone. <laughs> On mic, you'll now hear from Mosey Williams. Again, blood brother and social worker up in Northern California. He joined James Maple to talk about all things Black History Month and bleeding disorders. And that's coming up right now. Hello, Bloodstream audience. It is James Maple here, your Bloodstream correspondent here with another fantastic interview with Mr. Mosey Williams. Hello, Mosey. How are you today? Hey, pretty good. How are you doing, brother? I'm well, thank you. Uh, before we dive into the interview portion itself, I want to kind of set set the stage, set the table, if you will. Uh, Mosey, tell us um, who you are and what your connection to the bleeding disorders community is. I have severe hemophilia A with an inhibitor. And so that was how I was introduced to the community um, at birth. I had a hematoma on my head when I was born. And uh, that's when they found out that I had hemophilia. And I think I really got connected to the community um, when going to camp as a young kid. And that's when I really met other blood brothers and sisters. And that's really what uh, gave me a passion for wanting to be connected to everybody and be part of the community. So I volunteered for a number of years and now I, I work as a social worker in the hemophilia community. So I'm really just glad to be a part of it, you know, and help others to help connect other blood brothers and sisters. That's awesome. And this is this is not quite in the in our script of questions, but I'm realizing that like camp is starting to be this like common thread <laughs> that I'm realizing among almost everybody. I mean, Patrick, when I was introduced to Patrick, he that was like the basis of him was telling me about how camp changed his life. And um I just do I started I'm gonna start doing these let let's talk segments. Um yeah. with Patrick and Debbie De La Riva talking about mm -hmm. um hemophilia camps. And then all my guests thus far have talked about camp and how it's important to them. So uh, I was going to start with another question, but I want to start with this because we're on this topic. Like, what what was it about camp that made you feel connected to other blood brothers and sisters? For a lot of us, and I'll say for me, you didn't know other people that had hemophilia or other bleeding disorders. And so being there is like, wow, I'm not alone. And day to day, you did activities. We played, you know, different games and stuff. And in the in the world outside of, of of hemophilia, 
you know, a lot of times, oh, you can't play this sport or you can't do this activity and the world doesn't understand. But we were able to do all these things at camp in a safe way. And we had doctors to look out for us. So then you had these opportunities to really pursue passions and things that in, in the regular world, lack of a better term, you wouldn't be able to do. That was what got me about it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I feel like that it creates such a, an, um, an air of community. And, yeah. and for many people that have been on the pod have talked about how like they finally felt like feel, felt like they found their tribe and they could yes. be vulnerable and be themselves and not feel like you know I need to explain why I was on crutches two days mm-hmm. ago and yes. now I'm not or why I'm in a wheelchair today and today I'm not so let's turn things to uh, the topic of Black History uh, in particular yes. in celebration of Black History Month so what does Black History mean to you? within the context of the bleeding disorder space? A lot of the struggles uh, that my Black ancestors had, um, that gave me, as, I, as my parents taught me these stories growing up, uh, that gave me resilience and strength that I think helped me in my life with the bleeding disorder and having constant challenges from that. You know, all the injuries and bleeds and in and out of the hospital almost like a compounded appreciation and then realizing that I have these things and have these opportunities because of how they fought for us. Let's, let's like dig a bit deeper into that. Yeah, I, I mean, you, sure. you mentioned your resilience and where it stemmed from. Let's talk about the obstacles that you face specifically as a black man. I'm, I'm a black man myself. So yes. I, I, mm-hmm. we can see eye to eye on, on, on most things, but yeah. I don't have hemophilia. I don't have a connection to the bleeding disorder personally, aside from like the amazing guests that I've met along the way. What what obstacles have you faced specifically as a black man with hemophilia? And what are ways that you have climbed that mountain from the valley? What, did you turn to communities? Did you turn to certain organizations? Tell mm-hmm. I would be interested to hear you talk about that. Yeah, um, I can say one is because of through hemophilia, the amount of bleeding that we've done, a lot of the injuries, joint damage, you know, ankles, knees, uh, being in the hospital and having to having a lot of pain, physical pain to deal with and emotional, but in physical. So having to take pain medication and having to need strong pain medication after surgeries and, and, and procedures and things. So when I'm going to get my medication from the pharmacy or whatever, you know, they're looking at me like, is he a drug addict? You know, what's going on here? Do you really need this medication? Um, and so I feel like as a black man being profiled about that, oh, you know, I go, I call the pharmacy ahead of time. I show up to the pharmacy. They have the medication. I show up to the pharmacy. Oh, we don't have it. And I just called you. But I, when I get to the pharmacy, all of a sudden you don't have it. And so then having to drive around from pharmacy to pharmacy. And so until I found the medication, whatever, you know, the situation was, but just dealing with the frustration of that. Uh, but I can say that even, you know, hemophiliacs that aren't black have had that experience too. So I can't even tell which one of my identities it is, you know, but I know that I'm being discriminated against. And, uh, and so that, you know, is one situation. Um, another is going to the hospital. And I've told the story before, but going to a hospital and trying to get there and having to ride the shuttle, and people, you know, the shuttle drivers being profiled by the shuttle drivers and they're saying, oh, you know, you're assuming I'm not a patient. I'm telling them I'm a patient and them not knowing what they're and they're calling the dispatch on me to get me off of the shuttle because they don't believe the story I'm telling. 
And, and, and so I'm sitting there because this is a, around a time where a, a number of black men in this country, unarmed black men had been killed. And I'm wondering, what did I just do? Why didn't I just let this thing go and get off the show? And so when you, when you asked about, you know, what kind of support, particularly in our community, even just as hemophiliacs and people with bleeding disorders, I'm able to talk to them because they've been, they've been through it too, being, you know, not receiving pain meds, things being assumed about them. And also um, getting my own support, mental health support uh, from a social worker I had as well. And uh, him being a white man, and I told him the story about being profiled on the shuttle. And he apologized to me and he said, I'm sorry. He said, because I ride the shuttle every day and they don't say anything to me. I don't have a badge at all. And so you just realize, you know, getting that support and that validation that, look, I'm not crazy. I'm not making this up. These racist things are happening. I'm curious about uh, this intersectionality with another interviewee that I had, Adima Hendricks. Dima doesn't have uh, hemophilia. She has sickle cell. And mm-hmm. one thing that came up for her in particular was as a black woman, she was oftentimes felt felt like her, her level of pain was not taken seriously. Has that ever occurred yes. in your life as well? Yes. Um, and I think when I'm, I'm telling somebody, they don't think that I need this level of pain medication. And we know that, you know, in the past, there was bad medicine in the medical community that and research, flawed research, you know, just racist research that said, oh, black people can take uh, uh, have a higher pain tolerance than other people. And so when you look at, like you said, sickle cell and a disease that, that, that predominantly can affect African-Americans, you know, there's a lack of uh, uh, there's a disregard for it. And you know, discounting of those painful experiences. I've, you know, I don't want I, I don't I don't want us the the audience and and those listening to think that like your experience has been nothing but negative because I know there's been some positive in, in in this. What has been something, given your experience as a black man with hemophilia, that you look back on fondly? Yeah, uh, I think you know, and particularly at camp because when we grew up, there was there wasn't a focus so much on race because everybody was busy so busy bleeding that we were just focused on staying alive. And we just kind of made this, like you said, the tribe where we call each other blood brothers. And you have somebody that doesn't look like me and says, this is my brother. When we're, we're walking in the community and people say, that's your brother. And then they don't, you know, they don't get that. And there was a particular time where we had a, an event, uh, a bleeding disorders event. And a bunch of guys were at the bowling alley, all different ages, all different races, having a great time. And you could see the other people from other groups looking at us, trying to figure out what the connection to the group is. Like, how are all these people connected? And, and so we were all just having a good time. It didn't, you know, it didn't matter. And they're looking like, well, how, you know, how does this group come together? And what do they have in common? I feel like for our audience, we have to do a clarification. It's two black men speaking. There's a difference between a brother and a brother. You yes. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, for those young brothers out there, you know, yes. those young blood brothers, those young men, black men with bleeding disorders um, who are new to the community. What what advice would you have for them? I can see where somebody coming into the community, you know, you don't see people that look like you as much. And there may be a hesitance, you know, a, a questioning of, of what's happening, you know, you know, getting involved. And because of that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, like the quote, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Um, it's not easy, but, and what we've tried to do in our community in various spaces is to have groups for black families to discuss the challenges that we're having, safe spaces, a Facebook group 
for people to join so we can all, you know, come in. So those I would say to young to the young men, young brothers out there, you know, we're here and we're here to support you and encourage you and help you. There's a you know, and I would say in our community, there's a lot of strength. There's a lot of support that comes from all places. And I and, but we're here, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before before we get to the last question, I, I, I'm just I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. Um, to that family who had previously no connection to the bleeding source community who, you know, it wasn't in their realm of understanding. They, but boom, bundle of joy just came into their life. They are, they are the parents of a child with hemophilia or a bleeding disorder in general. What advice do you have to those parents? There is help that looks like us. And then there's help that, that doesn't, that's just going to wrap arms around you. And, and that's one thing I'll say about our community. People love to talk and they love to share. And so as soon as they see a new family, they want to tell you their story. And they want to, and they want to give you a space or any questions that you have that you can answer. And they want to be somebody that you can call late at night and help you to advocate. And that's the one thing about I will say one of the many things I could say about our community. There's a lot of support, and there's a lot of people that care, and they've been there, and they want to help you get through it. If you're with a hemophilia treatment center, connect with your social worker, and they can connect you with people. Tell them that you want to connect, and then they can reach out to somebody, you know, because, you know, the HIPAA thing. But if you say you want to connect with somebody, then they'll reach and find somebody that will reach out to you. The community is there, and it's ever-growing. Yeah. Uh, my last question to you, Mose, before we let you go. Um, I've asked all my guests this because I think it's important to, to, to frame the context of, of each interview. What do you want your legacy to be? I just... I hope that it can be said that, I, you know, I just really wanted to help others. I, mean, I don't know if it's going to be a landmark impact. Like I think about uh, Dr. Charles Drew, who was a pioneer in blood plasma, African-American doctor, um, and that has helped the hemophilia in the beginning, early stages as well with blood plasma. And I don't know that it will be that, but just in the people that I meet, if I'm able to encourage them uh, to get support or to connect them with somebody else within the community. Um, I think that I've done, I've done my job. I don't, I don't know that I have a, a job in that sense, but if I can just at least have helped one person or one person can say that, Oh, you know, we were able to connect and we learned this, you know, um, I think that's good. Well, I think even the, the small victories are still victories, Mosey, you know, you connecting person A to person B is is just as, as significant as you connecting person A to the community. I just thought of, I mean, I, I want to mention that one of my first camp counselors was Val Bias. Mm. And so when I was six years old, and so for him to go from art director to camp counselor to camp director to uh, board, board president to chapter president to the NHF president, CEO, I mean, he that made an impact on my life and so many other lives as a black man with a bleeding disorder. And so... I don't know that my impact will be as that as such, but he has impacted my life in, in a great way. And I just want to continue to help in any way I can. Well, we will continue to watch your journey and document and have you back to discuss it more in the future. Mosey Williams, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Keep up all the amazing work you do connecting brothers and sisters in the community. <laughs> we appreciate you and we will uh, talk with you soon. Thank you, Mosey. Also, thank you, James, for conducting that interview. Hey, let's Let's go on to The Well. Gen XYZ are also a part of Gen T. So many letters. Generational trauma. 
Mm. I get it. The bleeding disorder community really knows how a dark past can shape the heart of a community. And here at The Well, Jessica is going to dive into the need to connect with, while not always staying attached to, handed down trauma. And uh, we have a phenomenal interview guest here, Dwayne, from our series at HFA and back in 2022. So let's get to it. Here is the latest installment of The Well. The Well. Mildew, by definition, is a thin, whitish coating consisting of minute fungal hyphae growing on plants or damp organic material such as paper or leather. Mildew is not inherently bad, but in this segment, I'm going to use it to represent generational trauma, trauma, and toxicity. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. Now, while there's a Gen X, Gen Y, they're called millennials too, or a Gen Z, most folks alive and online today are all part of some kind of Gen T, generational trauma. Um, generational trauma. I, I've often said the greatest thing about this community is its sense of history. The worst thing about this community is its sense of history. We are here today at the well, not in the past, yet today is undoubtedly impacted by the past. When considering generational trauma, the influence of past traumas handed down through generations, it's helpful to consider what that hand-me-down looks like and feels like. It's just as important not to keep wearing it forever. Let's look at history without getting attached to it, right, Duane? I mean, when you show up to this as a new parent or a person who's maybe not been very involved with the community, there's this great history and this great community with their arms open wide, willing to just bring you in and make you a part of the organism. And, uh, but that being said, there's, there's the, the pain and the mistrust and the, 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 the dark times, and they're all real and they're all valid. Um, and they have to be acknowledged and they have to be, um, they have to be talked about. It has to be aired out. You know, it, without, without any sort of discussion around it, there's, there's no moving forward. Okay. I take it back then. We have to wear the hand-me-down. Or we don't. We just can leave it on our chair in the side of the room, strewn about in our bedroom, not trying to pay attention to it. But that which we don't look at looks back at us hard. Let's scrap the hand-me-down metaphor. Let's talk about mildew. What we spend our attention on multiplies. If I have a cup of water and it's gotten mildewy, and I just stare at the mildew, all I know is that this cup of water is mildewy. If I start instead to pour clear water into the cup, well, the mildew might take a while to get gone. I might just be adding water for more mildew to grow. So at some point, I'm going to have to just empty this cup, throw away the hand-me-down, get rid of it all, right? Ignoring the mildew won't make it go away. Adding more clear water to the cup won't necessarily wash the mildew out. So at some point, the cup has to be emptied, right? Moving towards healthy realities away from trauma and toxicity means moving forward beyond the bad times. Come on, what would Bruce say, Dwayne? I think oftentimes people think moving forward means moving past. But um, I think if I could paraphrase Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) which I do a lot, um, that that sense of community means that you bring all of it with you. The 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 joys, the good times, the bad times, the the atrocity. You bring it all with you. It powers whatever it is that you're going to do on a forward basis because you do have that history. 
Don't be mired in the history. Don't let the history bog you down. Don't let the history keep you from moving forward. Right, okay. So keep the clear water flowing in the cup. We know what happens if we just stare at it and do nothing. But we have to keep reminding ourselves why we pour water into the cup. Because what if at some point the mildew looks to be gone? What if we forget that without movement towards the future, towards a healthier place, that we will be left with stagnated mildew? Again, mildew is not bad, but in this metaphor, the trauma behind us can help remind us where to move towards, what we're moving away from. But for everyone in Gen T, Generation Trauma, to keep moving away from history also means remembering where we started. Ain't that right, Dwayne? Don't let the history bog you down. Don't let the history keep you from moving forward. And, but at the same time, there's a, that constant acknowledgement. Constant acknowledgement. Constant acknowledgement. Which means not forgetting the trauma that made us. Thanks, Dwayne, for the reminder. Thanks, Bloodstream, for having me on. This is Jessica, and I wish you well. Thank you, Jessica Lauren Richmond, for safely bringing us to and from the well <laughs> once again. Thanks as well to Nathan for coming on to talk about all things Washington Days and advocacy. Thank you to Mosey for chatting with our correspondent, James Maple, about Black History Month and bleeding disorders. Thank you all for contributing to today's episode, an episode that would not be possible, of course, without our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. Bloodstream's going to be back. Next week. Next How about week. that? We're just pumping out the episodes early in the year. Uh, February 17th, Amy Board. What can listeners expect to hear? So we'll be back next week again on February 17th, where we will continue our series on Black History Month and kind of uh, get several um, <laughs> perspectives. Uh, someone from the hemophilia community and someone from the sickle cell community. We'll be talking to correspondent James Maple. So we're excited about that. Subscribe here today to make sure that you get that uh, episode in your podcast player. And make sure to send us your advocacy letters for free services Ugh. where Amy and Patrick stay up nights with red pens to review Seriously, advocacy letters and give I you our notes. we will write advocacy letters with y'all. If you take us up on this, you are going to get response. Your letters are going to get better. I, yeah. That's actually true. I don't so. know. Let's have, let, it's so much fun. Let's do this. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. And with that, that is all for this episode. As always, as Amy said, remember, subscribe to the podcast, listen to new episodes, and share the Bloodstream podcast with friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, people at your treatment center, people at the bus stop, anyone you want. And if you or a loved one in the bleeding disorders community is a musician, we are putting this segment together. It's coming along pretty nicely, and we are looking for more participants. Share your story, share your songs for a new segment on Bloodstream by emailing mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about our storytelling and casting opportunities for these podcasts or Believe Limited's films. We're always casting something. And you can always connect with Bloodstream Media or me or Patrick. Oh, I, I, you can do so much connecting. On social media. <laughs> the best place to connect, is it though? Uh, I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, which is next week, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>